turn in it to Hebrews chapter 6. Our passage is going to be verses 4 through 12, but we're going to read a little more than that. So we're continuing to explore this letter that was written to strengthen the church of all ages, to persevere in the faith in the midst of the, the regular trials of life and also the, the particular trials that come to believers who are active in their faith. So most of the strength that's in the book of Hebrews comes from this continual gaze at the excellence of Jesus Christ. Because if your mind is filled with His excellencies, then whatever you want to suffer, will suffer for His sake isn't going to seem like as big a deal because He's worth it. So that's where most of the book of Hebrews goes. But every once in a while, we need to hear what the consequences are if you redirect your gaze away from Jesus, if you are thinking about maybe leaving the faith behind you and following some other road, every once in a while we need to hear a warning about what the alternative is to following Jesus. And today's passage tells us about probably the most severe warning um, for someone who's contemplating going that way. Um, but warnings are friends. Warnings are there to keep us out of danger. And so the ultimate um, purpose in it is a good one. God wants us to be safe. And so we're going to read this today. We're going to read uh, Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, and ask the Lord to open it up to us. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Let's pray. 
We bless you, Lord, that of all the things that you do, you are, your purpose is that we might have faith and inherit the promises. <laughs> you want good for us. And sometimes it comes in the form of a warning. So we need ears to hear it today. We need to take a gaze at the alternative to following Christ. And I pray that anybody who needs to hear this, we all need to hear it in some way. But Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear both warning and also encouragement. And you know who needs which one. Now we ask you to do it by the Holy Spirit among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a feature called the Knife Edge on Capitol Peak outside of Aspen, Colorado. Shannon and I crossed it about a year and a half ago. The Knife Edge is a place where the mountain comes to a sharp point. Uh, it's so narrow that you have to straddle it like a horse and scooch across for about 150 feet to get across it. And the whole time, on both sides of you, is a 2,000-foot drop-off. And you have to cross it twice. <laughs> Once on the way up, and another time on the way down. The knife edge is not a place where you want to linger very long because it is unsafe ground. You're much better off if you're keeping your eyes on what's in front of you and being careful with your handholds and your footholds and making slow but steady progress forward. To keep moving is to be safe. To linger is to endanger yourself. That is the thinking behind the warning in Hebrews chapter 6. The author starts by telling the church to keep moving. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He doesn't mean abandon the elementary doctrine of Christ, which Pastor Dan so well explained last week. He means make sure that that foundation of the gospel and sanctification and going on to glory, make sure that that's all there and then build on that. Make progress. Keep getting a better and better grip on all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let your heart fill up with the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, like Paul reflected on in Romans 11. Because if you don't keep moving in that direction, you are on unsafe ground. And verses 4 through 8 are a description of that unsafe ground. They describe a person who has lingered too long, who isn't going on to maturity, and who eventually falls away from the faith altogether to their own harm. And we don't want that to be anybody's story. The Lord doesn't want that to be anybody's story here who's listening to this today, because the passage ends on a high note in verses 9 to 12, which is a description of safe ground, the things that belong to salvation, and that's what the Lord would have for us, is those things. 
and not the things that lead to our own harm. And so the goal of the passage is to instill in each one of us a healthy fear of the unsafe ground and a greater assurance of the safe ground because those two things together will give us the strength that we need to live confidently for Christ in our culture. So let's jump right into it. First, we have the case of those who are on unsafe ground. The case of those who are on unsafe ground. Here it is from verses 4 to 6. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now let's think about what kind of person this is describing. Some will look at this text and say, well, that is a Christian who loses faith and therefore loses his or her salvation. Because what else can you make of statements like shared in the Holy Spirit or tasted the powers of the ages of the age to come? Surely this is a genuine Christian, granted forgiveness, has eternal life, and then they lose it all by losing their faith. But this is where we have to remember an essential rule of understanding our Bibles which is that we need to take into account all that the Scripture says about any particular issue. The Bible is a seamless whole. It is breathed out by God, the ultimate author, and He never says anything in one place that He contradicts in another place. Sometimes it may look like there's a contradiction, but close analysis always shows there is never a true contradiction. So it is in this case. God says in other places that once you are rescued from your sins through faith in Christ, that rescue cannot be undone. For example, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if Jesus has given you eternal life, you will never perish. You can't lose it. You can't perish if he's given you eternal life. No one, not even you, can escape his, protect his protective grasp. I have you. It's His power that has you, not yours. Romans 8.30, same thing. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. All those are in past tense. They're all as good as done. And what is that? That is the pathway to salvation. God calls there's a moment in point in time where you are justified, where you put your faith in Jesus as Savior, and you are declared righteous in that moment. And he says, after that, glorified. 
Those who are justified, he also glorified. Past tense, it's as good as done. You're already seated in the heavenly places. Your seat in the, in the life to come is secure. That's what that's saying. And we could point to other evidence. The Scripture teaches that you can't lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. So then, what do we make of this text? Well, it's description of a person who has all the appearance of a genuine believer, but then one day we realize they never were. It wasn't real. Let's consider each phrase. They have once been enlightened. That is, they've been educated. They've been informed about the foundational things in verses 1 and 2. They've, they've heard good preaching. <laughs> uh, they understand the basics of the gospel. They've heard about following Christ and the, and the hope of eternal life. They've, they've been instructed. They took Christianity 101 at, at the local church. Enlightened. But it doesn't say anything about what they really thought about those things, what impact that made on their lives. Again, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. We don't have a description of the heavenly gift here, but I don't think we have to get too complicated. I think it refers to the general blessing of God on His people. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I think a good illustration of this is the manna in the wilderness. The people of Israel, all of them are out there. This stuff comes down. They tasted of this heavenly gift, this blessing of God. And everybody got it. But it didn't have the same effect on everybody right? Some of them complained, why are we eating this stuff? You know, I want to go back to Egypt. So it doesn't say anything about the condition of their hearts. It's just they, they all tasted of the same blessing of God. They shared or have shared in the Holy Spirit. That's interesting language. You don't see that language anywhere else in Scripture about the Spirit. It doesn't say they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they received the Spirit. It doesn't say they were born again by the Spirit. Those are all things that describe genuine Christians. It just says that they shared in the Holy Spirit, which just means they were in the environment where the Holy Spirit was active and doing things in their church. But it doesn't say anything about their personal relationship with the Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, they tasted, they experienced the flavor of it. God's Word was preached, it was talked about. Miraculous things were happening. The powers of the age to come. Maybe that's prophetic words that are given in the, in the group. Maybe there's a healing. Maybe there's things going on that just can't be explained by just science or a material universe. And they're seeing all these things. They're tasting of it. But again, what effect did it have on them? Even Judas could say he tasted of those things. 
then they fall away, it says. They went out from the church. They turned their back on all of it. They said, I don't believe that stuff anymore if I ever did. So who is this person? Well, it's someone who looked like they were a Christian, but it wasn't real. They were part of the church. They went along with everything. They went to Sunday meetings. They went to small group. They may have helped serving. They may have helped in outreach events. They could tell you the gospel. But their repentance for sin wasn't genuine. And their faith wasn't completely in Christ and on His death on their behalf as payment for their sin. They weren't what people thought that they were. But nobody knew it until one day they walked away. And that's the point of the analogy in verses 7 and 8. There's an analogy about land that receives rain. And one field produces a crop that's useful to the farmer. The other field produces nothing useful, thorns and thistles, which is the same result of the sin in the garden. It's a result of curse. This is a comparison between two kinds of soil, just like the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. It's a comparison between a person who's genuinely saved and one who isn't. If the rain comes, which is this goodness of God, this activity of the Spirit, this truth in the Scriptures, when that rain comes, what that rain produces tells you something about the condition of that soil. If it produces the fruit of the Spirit... That's a Christian. If it produces nothing like that, that's not a Christian. So that's who we're talking about here. That's the case of the person who's on unsafe ground. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power without a real faith. And what are we supposed to take away from all this? Why is the writer presenting this to us? Well, it's to give us this warning. And here's the warning now, taking the beginning of verse 4 and then verse 6. The warning is, it is impossible in the case of this false Christian who walks away from it all, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. The word is impossible. Not unlikely... Not very difficult, but impossible. It can't be done. That person is beyond the ability to repent. And there is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. So here's the sobering truth. Though it is true that a genuine Christian cannot lose their salvation... It is also true that a false Christian can reach a point where they are beyond being saved. There is a point where, humanly speaking, it becomes impossible for a person to repent and be saved. If you've received everything you need to believe the gospel, good preaching, fellowship, abundant evidence of God's reality, God's common grace, you've received all of that and you reject it, there is a point where there is nothing else that can be done for you. It's like a person who gets a serious 
life-threatening infection. And they go to the hospital, hospital and the doctors try every antibiotic in their arsenal. I mean, the most powerful drugs known to man. And they try all of that on you and nothing works. There's a point where nothing more can be done. It becomes impossible to save that person. So it is in the case of the false Christian who walks away. There is a point of no return where there is nothing more that can be said and no more evidence that can be presented to change a person's mind about the gospel. <clears throat> because as the text says, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. That is, they've thrown in their lot with the people who actually crucified Jesus. They knew better. They saw his life. He met all the requirements for the Messiah. He did miracles in front of them. And they still killed him. And he says, that's what you're doing if you've had all those opportunities and all that information, and then you still say, no, I don't, I don't, I'm walking away from that. Then you're in league with, you're in solidarity with those who actually nailed him to the cross. And if a person reaches that point of unbelief when they know better, there is a point where they cannot be saved through any human influence. We don't know where that point is because we're not God. But that point is out there. Now, fortunately, we have the example of the prodigal son where this guy rejects his father, wastes his life, doesn't want to have anything to do with him, but then wakes up one day, repents. It was better in my father's house. I think I'll go back there. So we have that illustration to give us some hope. We don't know the end of anybody's story. So if you're aware of somebody who's done this, walked away from the faith, we don't know how that ends yet. But there's a point out there. There's a point where God will say, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to let them go to their own harm. And that is truly to be beyond salvation. That point exists. Now here's where this connects to life today. I know many churched people are rethinking their faith. There's a lot of pressure to do that. There's a lot of reasons people are doing that. Questioning the basic assumptions they were brought up with. Now, that in itself is not a bad thing. Every one of us needs to have our own conviction about the truth claims of Scripture. When push comes to shove, your parents' faith or your church's doctrine isn't going to be enough when you are looking at losing your job because of your faith or some other form of persecution, you have to be convinced yourself. 
You have to be convinced that the Bible is the authoritative and trustworthy word of God. You have to settle it in your own soul that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. And then trust in that completely and not in your own goodness. You have to be sure that there's a resurrection from the dead and a beautiful life to come for those who are in Christ. You have to be sure that Jesus is so worthy of your devotion that you'd be willing to suffer for obeying His commands. So it's good to rethink it. There are things that all of us need to settle in our own soul, and that's what it looks like to go on to maturity, this kind of project. So that's a good thing if that's what you're doing in rethinking your faith. My concern is that many people who are rethinking their faith are not trying to make those truths more sure by this humble submission to the Scriptures. I think many are what they're doing is simply falling away from the faith. What I see happening among evangelicals is that the net result of the rethinking often sounds a lot more like being conformed to the world than to be part of a kingdom that is not of this world. The worldview, the language, the passions all end up being the same as those in secular culture. And when it reaches a point where they no longer believe that Jesus died in our place, bearing God's wrath for our sins in order to reconcile us to God, then that is not Christianity anymore. That is holding the Son of God up to contempt because that's what He said, I came to do. The warning is that if you aren't going on to maturity, if you're not relying on and being changed by this gospel into the likeness of Christ, you are on unsafe ground. Your condition could be like that of the field in verse 8 that produced only thorns and thistles. It says that it is near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. That is a reference to hell and to the eternal judgment in verse 2. To fall away from the faith is far worse than any tribulation or persecution you might encounter for obeying Jesus. That's a sober warning. But warnings are to keep us out of danger. The rest of the passage shows us where the safe ground is. And of course, that's God's desire for us. <laughs> the warning is so that we don't stay there. We don't linger in that unsafe place. <clears throat> so let's turn now to the case of those who are on safe ground. The case of those who are on safe ground. Verse 9 turns us to the hope. The writer says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, <laughs> uh, but in your case, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. I love how that follows such a dire warning. We feel sure of better things. We feel sure of things that belong to salvation, meaning your salvation. We're pretty confident that you're on safe ground. Now, obviously, the writer doesn't want 
to have genuine believers wondering if they're on the road that leads to the point of no return. Often, it's the genuine believers who are the most susceptible to having doubts about their own salvation. That's because they're more aware of their sins than others. They have sensitive consciences. You know what I'm talking about if you've ever questioned your salvation because you wasted time on your cell phone. You know, you yelled at the kids because it was a bad day. Uh, you, you didn't get much out of your devotional time this morning. And you start to think, am I even saved? Because like, like you're obsessing over every little thing because you're aware, yeah, yeah, I failed again. <clears throat> For that kind of person, the one who wants to go on to maturity but is sad about the current results, <laughs> there is hope there. There is solid encouragement. In your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We'll see why he feels that way in a minute, but let's just pause and remember, what are the things that belong to salvation? Just give you a short summary. God forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future. He'll never hold them against us because He charged them against His beloved Son on the cross. God considers us His friends, not His enemies. We have His acceptance, His welcome, His affection. He actually likes us despite all of our faults and failures. We are legally and relationally His adopted children. So we have His fatherly care. He's taken us on as His responsibility. He's a good father who will never leave or forsake us. He's our provider. He's our protector. No good thing does he withhold with, from us, and no bad thing does he ordain for us unless it will work for our ultimate good. He will, we will never be alone, for Jesus has said, I will be with you always to the end of the age by his Spirit, and we will enter into glory an unending, resurrected life in a renewed world free from all adversaries and free from all misfortune. These are things that belong to salvation. And the writer says, in your case, we feel sure of these things for you. What a, what a kindness of God to speak that kind of reassurance into the hearts of believers after that dire warning. Because it means he doesn't want the genuine believers to be losing sleep over this, but to have assurance. And in that assurance, be bold and hang in there and keep going even though it's hard. Because you know, he's for you. You're on safe ground. Keep going. He wants that for us. Yes, some need to take to heart the warning, but there are justifiable grounds to feel sure about one's salvation. So how do you know? What are those justifiable grounds? How can you tell the difference between the person who just looks like a believer and isn't one and the person who's genuinely saved? Well, it comes down to evidence. Evidence. The writer doesn't say, you know, I feel pretty good about you, so thumbs up, good to go. You know, that's not really that much, that's not that encouraging. You could be wrong. <laughs> Your feelings don't tell me anything. No, he cites evidence that gives him that confidence. And here's the principle. While it is true that salvation is by faith, 
assurance of salvation is by evidence. And we see that evidence in verse 10. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Why? For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. There are three pieces of evidence there of their salvation. The first is your work. Your work, what is called good works in other places. This is those things like helping the poor, visiting the sick, caring for the elderly, sharing what you have with others, showing hospitality to strangers, and so many other things. These believers were doing things like that. These are the kinds of things that testify to a changed life, to a genuine believer. Because Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that that's what we can expect to happen if you've been affected by grace. Paul said, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you get saved by grace through faith and not by works, right? God does it, you receive it, you didn't earn it. But what happens when God does that? Well, He's prepared good works for you to do. (laughs) Those things start to flow. If you've been changed, saved by grace, something changes in your life, and you start to be less selfish, less all about your own world, and more about what's going on around me. Who can I serve? Who can I help? That's the internal change that leads to these outward effects. So works is an evidence that you're the real deal. And the writer says, I see that in you. That's why I feel sure about better things. But they aren't just any good works. People who are not Christians can do all those things that I mentioned. There's a specific motivation for these works, which is the second evidence of their salvation. It's their love. Their love for the Lord and for the church. He mentions the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. Many of the good works that this writer knows about are directed at the church. They're serving the saints. They're caring for and they're blessing fellow believers in Jesus. And that's because they love His name. They love who He is. They're taking on what He loves as their, own, their, as their own desire. And what He loves is the church. He died for it. He died for His bride. That's love language in Ephesians, 20, Ephesians 5. He loves His church. And so if we love Him, we're going to love who He loves. And He loves His church. And so when we're serving the saints, and this person says, I see you doing that. He says, well, that, that tells me you've been changed by somebody who loves the church. <laughs> and that somebody is the Lord. The love of other Christians is one of those evidences. So you bring a meal to your sister in Christ who's coming home from the hospital because she's, she's one of us. She's a sister. I have, a, I have affection. I, I, you matter to me. I care. Because you're in Christ with me. 
John said in his first letter, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. A lack of love for Christians calls into question your love for God. But where serving the saints, where love for them is present, then it testifies to the genuineness of your love for God. And that's a real Christian. The writer says, I see that working in you. That's why I feel sure of better things. And then the last evidence in verse 10 is that this work and this demonstrated love have held up over time. He says, as you still do. You're still doing it. I've heard about it, and I know you're still doing it. Remember, this letter is the people who are tempted to leave the faith. There's some cost in following Christ. There's pressure to distance themselves from the Christian community. But despite that, they're still serving. They're still showing love to one another. And that means this has gone deep. This isn't superficial for a season. It has stood the test of time. It comes from the heart. And the writer says, I see that. It's still happening. That's why I'm sure about good things for you. I love how the writer puts strength into these believers. He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook these things in, the, in you. <laughs> Ultimately, it doesn't even matter what the writer thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't even matter what you think. What matters is what God knows. <laughs> what matters is what God sees. And He won't overlook these things. You and I might overlook it. We might judge ourselves too harshly. Other people might judge, wrong, might judge us wrongly, but God won't do that. He knows. <laughs> he knows those who are His. And that's your security, ultimately. So where there's evidence of these things, there's assurance. And again, some genuine believers have an oversensitive conscience and condemn themselves for every little thing, but Perfection isn't the evidence. <laughs> if it was, only Jesus would be saved. <laughs> just the presence, just the longing to go on in maturity, just the attempt to make progress. That's all we need. And it will show up in ways. It'll show up in this act of love and, and that act of service and so forth. It's not perfection, but is it there? Do we have evidence of it? Do we see some record? It doesn't have to be a perfect record. It won't be a perfect record. But is it there at all? Where there's evidence, where there's a desire to go on in maturity, there is enough reason for assurance. And that brings us to the last point, which is to make sure that you are on safe ground. Make sure you're on safe ground. That's the pastoral burden of the writer in verses 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here's what he wants to leave us all with. Here's his exhortation to every individual. He desires this for each one of you. Be earnest to have that full assurance of hope to the end. Make sure 
You're on safe ground and not unsafe ground. So if you have doubts about the Christian faith, if you feel detached from the church, if you're unmoved by the Scriptures, if you don't have a real affection for Jesus, if you doubt God's promises, He would say, God would say, don't stay there. There's a 2,000-foot drop from there. Don't linger. Rather, get a foundation under you. Be convinced about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring your doubts and your questions and your fears to God, to His Word, and to His people who can help you with this. Believe it when he says in Jeremiah 29, Seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And when he says in Isaiah 66, 2, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the posture that gets answers. That gets full assurance of hope in that direction. And then from that foundation, you go on to maturity. He says, don't be sluggish. Press into knowing God, knowing His Word. As you contemplate His great mercy in light of your great sinfulness, that's going to affect how you live. It's going to make you grow in love and good works, beginning with those in your church and, then, and overflowing to those outside. And then finally, imitate the faith. He said, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be imitators of those people. Learn from the godly examples around you. Learn from the people who have been through hard things and their faith is still intact. Don't imitate those who are questioning their faith and losing their faith. There's no assurance there. That's a moving target. Get coffee with somebody who has been burned by injustice or suffered grievous losses and suffering, and they still love the Lord. Get coffee with that person. That's who you want to imitate. Because that's a person who inherits the promises. That's a person who's on safe ground. So I'll just close with this. As your pastors, we join with the writer of Hebrews in that desire that each one of you have the full assurance of hope until the end. It's, it's what we pray about and labor for day after day. It's the only thing that we're here to do. And they do it because it's the desire that God has for us. We're only the messengers. The desire originates with God himself. That he would invite you, don't be in the danger zone. Come to me and be safe. And may we all be in that place. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for not pulling any punches. It wouldn't be loving to know that there's a point of no return, but not ever be told that. 
But you tell us a lot more than that, which is that there's a safe place. Through faith, there's a way to inherit promises. Faith in Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to die in our place and to make a way to be brought to God. So may everyone hearing this take that path. In Jesus' name, amen.